Hi there, today's March 24th, 2014, and this is Epicenter Bitcoin, episode 12. On today's show, we're talking about the new release of Bitcoin version 0.9, false rumors of a Bitcoin ban in China, OKCoin and Bitstamp each raising $10 million, KNC miners pre-sale of their first script mining product, and the proposal for a new Bitcoin symbol. If you like the work we're doing and you'd like to support the show, please go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips for our tipping address. Hello and welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, episode 12. My name is Sebastian Couture. I'm a Canadian-born user experience designer and developer based in Lille, France, and I'm also the founder and organizer of Bitcoin Talks in Lille. And I'm Brian Fabian Crane. I'm a Berlin-based uh, entrepreneur and uh, founder of the Bitcoin Startups Berlin Group. How are you doing, Brian? Yeah, good. I'm in London at the moment. I've been here for a few days and going back to Berlin tomorrow. So I've been at this uh, futurism conference the last two days, which was quite interesting. Although a, a talk on Bitcoin was sorely missing. So. <laughs> Uh, I'm surprised that there was no talk on Bitcoin. You told me this earlier, and I was a little surprised about it. Yeah, I was talking with the guy who's organizing the conference, or who organized the conference, and um, maybe we'll... It's also a regular meetup. They do meetups maybe every month, where they have often pretty well-known people coming in. So I, I was talking with him about doing a Bitcoin meetup, and he's interested in it. He would like to do it. I think he just doesn't understand it so well yet. Okay. But yeah, I think it would have been. I think people would have been extremely interested in it. So, what's a futurist conference? So, there are different topics covered. Like the, the basic idea is like you know where's the world going? What's going to happen in the next uh, ten years, twenty years, and beyond? the t- The title of the conference was anticipating two thousand twenty five. So it, it was about topics like nanotechnology, um, longevity. The singularity. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. It was a good conference. It was pretty interesting. I, I was quite familiar with most of the things that were talked about, so there wasn't so much new for me. Um, so I, I was hoping that there would be more kind of new areas. But one thing, honestly, I took away, which I found was very striking for me, was that, you know, if, let's say I had given a talk here about Bitcoin and it was anticipating 2025, that's just, you know, I think for anyone who's in the Bitcoin world, completely absurd to try to talk about 2025, you know, I mean, right, we, right. we've done like one year predictions. I think maybe you could try to do two years, which would already be very daring. And I'm sure you'd be off massively on major points, but then 10 years or 11 years, completely unthinkable. And, and <laughs> yeah. I think you see Bitcoin going so fast. And I, I think the reason is that you have this economic incentives that are there that give, um, that give a lot of incentive for all these people to independently work on this. And then you compare this to these other projects like, you know, combating aging or something like that, 
which you need a lot of funding and centralized and it's very difficult because uh, governments don't fund that kind of thing. And it just moves so much slower. You know, they can talk like 10 years, uh, you know, what's kind of on the horizon 10 years and they, they, they can talk about these things. But it's also, I think, because uh, they just work completely differently in terms of the structure of how the innovation works there. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I, I think you're right. That it's very, very difficult to even tell what's going on in six months from now in, in Bitcoin. But I, I think it's also um, it's also because uh, this is also new. You know, uh, you know, we've we've been talking about aging and these other these other topics for quite some time now. And that's true. Uh, yeah, that's you true. Know, and, you know, internet technology, we have some experience with that. There's some linear regression that we can kind of follow. And maybe not linear because um, it, it is uh, exponential growth though, that the futurists will tell you. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll talk about it, hockey stick curve kind of growth. And so you kind of have to always think of it in terms of exponential growth. But anyways, uh, w- but we still have some something to look back upon, uh, whereas in, in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, it's it's just like there's very little data to pull from, right? Yeah, that's true. No, it's certainly true, right? If you talk to something like nanotechnology, it's been around for a long time, or another guy gave a talk on sort of brain hacking. So, you know, different yeah. ways of stimulating uh, the brain through mm-hmm. like uh, transcranial direct stimulation or, or light or other things. And these are technologies that have been around for 40 years or... 30 years or longer and it's and, and there's know, research there, right there, there's, there's research is progress doing and PhDs and oh lots re- of them yeah. writing research papers and you know, Ray Kurzweil writes his books there over at Google <laughs> yeah I am but I I think it's it's it was astonishing to see the difference that at least my impression is of the pace in these areas and in Bitcoin it's just like a world's apart I think one one exception, perhaps, was there was a talk on health 2.0. So the whole idea of like mobile health, wearables, Internet of Things. I think that area seems to be moving really fast, too. Maybe not as fast as yeah, Bitcoin, but still really fast. Uh, should we get started cool. with our topics? Uh, were there a lot of people there? Yeah, it was like 200, yeah, perhaps. Sure. 200? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's pretty decent sized. I've also right. been doing some interviews, uh, some Bitcoin interviews uh, with some uh, local people here from the Bitcoin community. So we'll be releasing those as uh, kind of additional episodes in the next, in the near future as well. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's get started with these topics. So uh, I guess the big news this week, uh, which was kind of waited, uh, we were kind of waiting for it, is the update to Bitcoin uh, the Bitcoin QT client to version 0.9.0. And so the update came out on, uh, when did the update came out? Uh, come on, Brian. The 19th, was it? Uh, yeah, this week. In, at least. Yeah, so this week on the 19th. So the core core uh, Bitcoin dev team uh, says a, a new milestone in development of Bitcoin, of the Bitcoin reference implementation has been reached. Version 0.9.0, as a major version, it introduces both new features and bug fixes. Uh, 
so if you go to bitcoinfoundation.org slash blog, you can get a, a full list of those changes there. And there's quite a few changes, uh, a lot of changes that we were anticipating already. So um, the major changes are to the payment protocol. Uh, so there's a kind of a whole re uh, redesign of the payment protocol and how payments uh, get um Get yeah, yeah, so so the main the main news here is that uh, there's kind of a protocol of how there can be a direct communication channel between um, the two parties in the payment. So the this in general is kind of designed for a merchant customer transaction. So let's say you go in a store and you want to pay for something with Bitcoin then this payment protocol defines how that store can send you a payment request, which includes additional information, and then you can pay this. And uh, so it has some really interesting properties. Uh, for example, when you get the payment request from the store, they c- will sign that request with their SSL certificate. So now when that request appears in your wallet, instead of just seeing some um, random looking Bitcoin address, you could see uh, the name of the of the store. So in a similar way to when you go to an HTTPS or an SSL site, uh, you would often see in your browser on the left side, the name, um, you know, the name of the website that was used to sign that, uh, who owns the certificate that signed that website. So it's basically the same thing, also using SSL. So that's, of course, a, first of all, it's more secure. And second of all, in terms of usability, the cool thing is in the future, perhaps we wouldn't even see the Bitcoin address anymore. Yeah, I guess that kind of depends on how uh, the Bitcoin clients are going to implement this, right? So there, there's a lot of, uh, this is the technical kind of base uh, of how payment requests are going to be generated, but then wallet software will implement it in such a way that um, they'll, I guess they'll have their interpretation of how they they, they want this to actually yeah. happen. So we'll, That's just right. to get back to the payment request, how how it works is uh, the the merchant or the person who is requesting the money would generate a payment request, which is essentially a file. Um, so, which means that you can transfer that to your customer either through a, a URL. So, for for instance, if they're on a um, on a mobile website uh, on an Android phone or on a computer, well, if they click it, it'll be the regular kind of uh, Bitcoin uh, colon URI. So that can carry the Bitcoin uh, payment uh, request, but it can also be an attachment, say in an email uh, or it can be transferred over uh, NFC, for instance, and I don't see why it couldn't be transferred over QR code as well, since you can have uh, the URI information within a QR code. So there's multiple ways that you could transfer a payment request. And uh, in fact, it seems from the blog post here that BitPay has already implemented it. So, Yeah, I think uh, I know the Bitcoin, the Androids, you know, Andreas Schäpers, well, he's also been working on that for a while. I think all the major wallets are implementing that. And uh, just to come back briefly to, you know, how are they going to do that? I think the idea of this is to get rid of Bitcoin addresses, uh, at least to the extent that 
in certain transaction you wouldn't see them anymore. I, I mean, perhaps this won't happen so soon because we'll also have to figure out the whole usability of this, like how are wallets going to look like. Uh, but at least that's the direction it's going. And I think it's very positive because if you think of kind of regular people getting into Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin addresses, uh, they probably shouldn't see them in normal transactions. Yeah. And it's much better if they, you know, they go to the Nike store, they see like, oh, Nike sent me this payment request. Uh, that makes more sense than I'm paying some money to this random looking address. Right. Right. And so if we look at the messages here, in fact, uh, I'm looking at the the technical documentation. So you can have uh, a payment URL. You, so secure, usually HTTPS location where payment message may be sent to obtain a, a payment um, acknowledged uh, message. So you could have a a payment um, a payment URL sent with the request, yeah. So that you know the the customer could verify that in fact the payment request comes from that URL. And I looks as though you can also have uh, an well, arbitrary URL. data. You can send arbitrary data, so you could just send a description, for example, what the payment is for. So if I'm this sure I send you payment request, I could say it's for three shirts and two pants, and you could put in, for example, the equivalent in euros. So you could say, okay, this is 100 euros. So, uh, and the wallet could, of course, then display that information, which would make it, I think, much more, um, much more user-friendly and also more secure because now I pay that because... Uh, the payment message I got from the merchant was signed by the SSL certificate. If I pay that, I can prove that I paid exactly that invoice for those products and to that uh, merchant, which is which is really great. Yeah. Now, the, the technical documentation is actually very interesting. If you go to uh, github.com slash bitcoin slash bips, uh, you can search for BIPS70. So this is BIPS70 payment protocol authored by Gavin Andreessen. And all of the technical documentation is there. So exactly like what the protocol looks like. There's a, a nice, um, uh, some schematics here on like the, the workflow of a payment protocol request. And as well, you can see all of the kind of, uh, the technical, uh, um, description of, what's included in the payment request, so different fields and values and such. So, uh, it's um, it's a step into, I, I think, uh, you know, some really well-needed uh, real payment system sort of uh, basics that were missing from Bitcoin, whereas uh, before payments were done in a very kind of rudimentary way, this brings it forward into the kind of and, and gives it the features that merchants actually need to to be able to uh, accept payments in a kind of serious way, right? Uh, where you can have a, a, a bit um, the client's refund address, for instance, sent with the payment, so that the merchant doesn't have to look for the 
customer's uh, yeah. refund address if they need to do a refund. So that you can send a memo with the invoice ID so that you can sign your transaction with SSL. So all this kind of stuff is very important for merchants to be able to look at Bitcoin as a serious payment option. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it, it will be very interesting to see how wallets, uh, point-of-sale systems, or uh, online uh, payment processors like BitPay and Coinbase will implement this. Uh, I, I guess we will have they will have to find some kind of uniform way and standard of how this is done. But I think once it is done, perhaps a few months down the line, six months down the line, etc., Hopefully, we will see a you know kind of a step up in terms of the usability and just friendliness, smoothness of uh, Bitcoin payments. Yeah, now, there's some other important changes to this uh, core client update. Uh, we we've been calling it the core client update because so the, there's a, a branding change. So now they're no longer calling it Bitcoin QT; they're calling it Bitcoin Core. And so this sort of addresses some of the um, nomenclature issues that we've been having where the Bitcoin payment system or the protocol is called Bitcoin with a small B and the you know, Bitcoin, the currency is Bitcoin with a capital B and there's Bitcoin QT. So now uh, the protocol, uh, the core protocol is uh, now going to be called Bitcoin Core. Yeah, I think the issue is also, I know they've changed this now, but it used to be if you went to Bitcoin.org, it was kind of in the beginning, like download the client. And, uh, you know, it used to be the Bitcoin client. And I think when people were there for the first time, a lot of them ended up downloading Bitcoin QT or now how it's called the Bitcoin Core client. And of course, that's really inappropriate for the vast majority of people because it will take like days to update the blockchain and download the full blockchain. And it's just not, not the right client for uh, for normal people. It's, it, and I think that what they try to emphasize with this as well is that this is the client that developers, more advanced users, or people who have a particular reason for using the QT client should download or the core client should download, but it's not like the go-to wallet solution. Right. Sorry, I was mistaken when I just said I said that the that they're not calling a protocol Bitcoin Core. Uh, I, I was wrong in saying that. So they're calling the Bitcoin QT Bitcoin Core. So like you said, the yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. Um, emblematic uh, Bitcoin software written by the core developer team. Uh, right. So the reference client is now called Bitcoin Core. So in the rebranding readme, they said to reduce confusion between Bitcoin the network and Bitcoin the software, we've renamed the software client to Bitcoin Core. Yeah. So it'd be, exactly. it would be great if they could call if we could rebrand Bitcoin the network to something else. I I think that you know it, it's great to call Bitcoin the currency Bitcoin with a capital B, but I really think that the the, the protocol should be re, rebranded to something a bit more generic. That's an interesting thought. I, I honestly do find it quite hard to when you write about Bitcoin to know like when is it a big B and when is it a small uh, when is a capital when is it small caps yeah. uh, so it is it is quite confusing I mean I guess it's probably too late quite frankly to rebrand it um, yeah. yeah but so it's uh, yeah it's an interest perhaps it would have been better because I mean when, you, when we talk about the, the internet we're generally I don't know. I mean, or we can we can be talking about the World Wide Web, or we can be talking about the Internet TCP/IP protocol. 
Um, but at least there's uh, there's kind of the, the reference term that you could always go back to when you're there's when there's confusion about the internet. I'm using quotes here. You, you can always say, "Oh, well, I meant TCP/IP," right? And there's always that distinction. Whereas in Bitcoin, it's, less, it's a bit more complicated. Yeah, no, I agree. So there were there were some other uh, changes regarding the transaction malleability. You know, the the thing that has been on our mind or that was for a brief time was kind of the number one topic everyone was uh, kind of scared about. So I think what's going to happen now, of course, the problem with transaction availability was that as a node, you could get a Bitcoin transaction, a valid Bitcoin transaction. You could uh, kind of change it slightly without altering the content of the transaction and then uh, send it on. And this could lead to all kinds of confusion. So now there was uh, some changes were made that nodes will re- recognize if a transaction was kind of malformed or changed, and then they would refuse to relay it or send it further. I don't know if this uh, solves the full problem, so I don't know if this addresses all the malformed transactions or some of them, but uh, hopefully at least it would improve the situation. Although I think there haven't been any more transaction mailability attacks recently. Yeah, I'm I'm reading uh, again in the README, so it says this release contains a few fixes for transaction ID malleability issues. So there is apparently uh, there's five fixes, uh, and these are these go uh, quite uh, these are quite technical. So there's a, a command line option which avoids spending zero confirmation change. Yeah. Um, there's also a new rule, so it's. This rule is standard transaction rules tightened to prevent relaying and mining of mutated mutated transactions. So a mutated transaction is a transaction that has been changed after it's been initially issued. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, The other rule, the other fix is uh, additional information in... List transaction slash get transaction output to report wallet transactions that conflict with each other because they spent the same outputs. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand a lot of this, but um, bug fixes to the get balance list accounts RCP commands, which would report incorrect balances for double spent or mutated transactions. And there's a new option, this is also for the command line um, client, to rebuild the wallet's transaction information. So I'm guessing yeah. base, you know, base, so it recreates uh, transaction ideas based on it, it, the original transaction content. Yeah, probably. yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah. So hopefully that uh, solves the problem. I don't know if there was still so much of a problem, perhaps in... I mean, after all, if we think back in the first place, the problem became such a topic because Mount Gox claimed that's how they lost all their money. Of course, now we kind of doubt this is really what happened, although we still don't know. So if if they didn't actually lose the money that way, perhaps this was never such a big problem as it was, it, it seemed like for a short time. Yeah. 
there's also a change in the transaction fees. So right now, the kind of default transaction fee was 0.01 uh, milli Bitcoin. Uh, no, it was 0.1 milli Bitcoin, which is about uh, 5 cent, I guess. And now it was reduced to a tenth of that, so 0.5 US cent at the current rate. And what this means is I think uh, Bitcoin nodes would have refused to relay some of the transaction if they're below that, or you know you can't even execute them with a lot of wallets. So now you can. I don't know what that will mean in reality because, of course, the miners could still say we don't include it in the block. So I still, I've, as far as I know, they still haven't really figured out how to design the optimal way of establishing uh, transaction costs or transaction fees. So I, I don't know if this solves it, but of course, uh, one issue that it addresses is that uh, Bitcoin uh, transactions that actually not become that cheap. You know, if you think of uh, nine cents that they were a few months ago when the Bitcoin price was really high, it really isn't that little. Um, yeah, for microtransactions. Uh, yeah, yeah you're Smaller right. transactions, right? I mean, let's yeah. say you pay a dollar and it's 10% transaction fee. Well, you know, that that's that's, you know, that kind of doesn't live up to the the promise of cheap transactions. And so this brings it to about five cents at current price, is that? No, no, 0. Oh. 0.5 cents. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, so if this is, if Bitcoin transactions with, with this new transaction fee of 0. 0.01 milli Bitcoin uh, are going to be included in the blocks by the miners in general, hopefully they will, then this will make Bitcoin transactions really cheap. I mean, less than a cent. At the current rate, of course, if the Bitcoin price goes up by a factor of, you know, ten, then it would not be as cheap anymore. But still, five cents, you know, reasonable, sort of reasonable. So this is something we talked about a few weeks ago, I think, uh, where it, it would be desirable that the transaction fees would be fixed. Uh, or algorithmically calculated um, based on what, I don't know, but it seems kind of flawed that, that uh, a well, few people have have control over what transaction fees should be and that and, and that they all that you know, it has to be a manual um, hard coded thing, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it should be a, some sort of market mechanism where it's like supply and demand and perhaps a priority thing where you'd say, I care more about my transaction, so I pay more, and I'm sure that it's included in the first block and I have to wait. Uh, but I guess how to implement that in reality is, isn't so trivial. So I, I, I think that is the goal where they want to go in the um, medium term, but they have, still haven't done it with this, uh, with this upgrade. Also, uh, maybe one thing I'd, I'd like to mention. So this is now version 0.9. Uh, I just checked when was 0.8, and it was more than a year ago. It was in 19th of February 2013, so it's, it's been quite a while. Yeah, so overall there's been a lot of uh, points. I don't know if the next version will be um, version 1.0. When is version 1.0, yeah. Or if this can be 0.10, could also be, no? Yeah, I guess so. 
But yeah, I guess I mean in terms of versioning, you've got when you write software, there's different ways of versioning it. So um, having a version one one point doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, that's true. If this is the way they chose to do versions, but it is still, you know, right now if you download, if you have the Bitcoin uh, Qt or I guess Bitcoin Core client now, uh, if you go like. Um, if you click on the about about the client, it says, you know, this is experimental software. You sort of use it at your own risk. And it's kind of ironic if you think of now Bitcoin having many millions of dollars of value, uh, billions of dollars of value. And it's still like, oh, this is experimental software. So, of course, it is, it is I think, an important milestone when you say, okay, we've passed that. We are there. There's the first stable um, version, we stand behind that, this is secure. I think this will be an important moment. Yeah, when, when it comes out of that experimental software. Exactly, uh, yeah. Yeah, it becomes something uh, that you can, I, I suppose, trust. Now, the, there's another interesting update I was reading about it's called coin control okay so this this is a new feature that allows advanced users to manu- manually control uh, coin selection so every time you receive coins uh, a new unspent output gets added to the wallet right so yeah. what so what happens is uh, say you have to transfer or one bitcoin your wallet software will choose what inputs amount to a little bit more than one Bitcoin. And it'll make a transaction for one Bitcoin to the address you're sending it to and then grab whatever's rest left, the change, and send it back to you. So these outputs are combined as uh, nece- as necessary for the outgoing payments. So normally this process happens automatically and outside of the user's control. But with coin control, the user can now s- select which unspent outputs to be used as input for a transaction. Yeah. And also makes it possible to, con- to control which address chains will go to. So it sounds like uh, you can have manual control over where your change goes. But this seems like it would be a wallet implementation rather than a protocol level thing. No, no it's a wallet implementation. Yeah. So this is for which client? For the the core client? For the core client, yeah. But not in this version. In the no, 0.9? it's in this version. Yeah, it's in zero point nine. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, hmm. I think this is, of course, especially important if you talk about privacy. So if you wanna have also. certain. Well, so if you, of course, a change addresses can be a, a privacy problem. So, you know, or so let's say you got several different uh, transactions paid into your wallet, then which ones will be used? So let's say you want to send your friend some money, then which, which, um, balances will be used as inputs to that transaction will, of course, tell him. Uh, some things about how many bitcoins you have, where you got them from, etc. So uh-huh. if you can selectively choose, okay, I want this and this and this, then 
uh, you could, at least in theory, enhance your privacy. Now, the problem, I guess, is this is not user-friendly, right? So if you have to think of, like, so which one where you maybe have to go wash in the info, et cetera. So I don't know well, how... No, it, I'm looking at some screenshots here. It, it tells you, like, you, you select the addresses that you want to use as uh, inputs. So you have kind of like a list view. It'll show you the um, the transactions I think yeah it seems like looks like transaction addresses so you look at the transactions you you select the transactions you want to use yeah. as uh, as inputs and then I suppose there's another place where you can set the change address yeah I mean the, the I guess the point is that. This is a, is a good thing, it's a desirable thing in a sense, but it's not really ideal if people have to do this manually. No, so it's, it's I, advanced I, ideal. Feature. Yeah, exactly. But ideal would be if wallets actually did have some kind of intelligence in which unspent outputs they used as inputs. So I think Mike Kern has, was writing about this at some point, that you know, this will be important in that wallets are smarter in what what they use as inputs so privacy can be more protected. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think it will be... Of course, it's, it's a big topic that we've talked about numerous times. I'm sure we'll come back to the whole question of how can you maintain privacy. Now, there's uh, some other... Uh, Interesting uh, information about this update. The Windows version is now a 64-bit client, so 64-bit Windows users can uh, benefit from uh, full 64-bits. Full uh, it's interesting, though. I just, I just updated. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> and it's still Bitcoin QT on the Mac. The name of the software is still Bitcoin QT, although the welcome stream is Bitcoin Core. Yeah. Do you know yeah, I, don't I, know I, noticed, that, I noticed it, yeah. Maybe I don't know if that's because forgot they just about want it. To, um, I think it's probably just because when you, when you copy it to your apps directory, it will rewrite the old version, but if they change the name, it would you would keep both. Yeah, but... But yeah, so is there something else you want to cover regarding the, the upgrade? No, I think we pretty much covered the, the important... Parts of it. The, for me, the most important uh, aspect of this update is the payment protocol stuff. Like I said, this is a highly. Um, it, it makes your. It's, it's highly important, but it really makes uh, transactions sort of. Uh, uh, um, I say. I mean, it, it makes trans. It makes it so that transactions are near the way transactions work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or uh, it's, I'm sorry, it's late. <laughs> it, it makes it so that, so that transactions happen on, in, in such a way that it's similar to how they happen now with payment systems, right? So you can now include uh, invoice numbers. You have a, level, uh, a new yeah. layer of trust, which is uh, least- who you're paying with the SSL so, um, certificate and such. So I think we're moving in the right direction. The next question is how will payment processors and wallets uh, implement this in such a way that it's, it's 
easy for Bitcoin users to uh, to use. Yeah, that's right. I think that that's going to be the the main thing is like how this is going to be implemented. But yeah, it's a, you're absolutely right. I think there's at least the potential in there that it will bring uh, a really big improvement in terms of usability. Mm-hmm. But you're right, though, uh, when you when you say that when you say that potentially this is a way to eliminate Bitcoin addresses in in a in a transaction. Well, in effect, you do eliminate Bitcoin addresses because you just scan uh, an NFC-enabled um, device and you get all the transaction information plus the Bitcoin address that you're sending it to. And then the wallet implementation can then decide or not to show the... Uh, yeah, the, that's right, yeah. I mean... The merchant's address or exactly. just show the URL or their name. Yeah, so the important thing is, like, of course, if you look at the blockchain, the transaction is going to look the same. Uh, but as a user, you may not have to see the Bitcoin address at all. And that's a good thing, I think. Yeah. Well, I think that's all we had to cover for the 0.9 update, unless you had anything else you want to add. No, that's, that's cool. Let's move on. All right, cool. So the next story we've got want to talk about is um, the sort of again China <laughs> stories coming out of China that are affecting the Bitcoin price. So this week, uh, the microblogging site Sina Weibo, which is I guess sort of like a Tumblr in China, falsely reported that uh, the People's uh, Bank of China was going to enact a ban of Bitcoin on April 15th. So Sina Weibo has a live financial news feed and they issued a statement, which has now been retracted, indicating that uh, China's central bank, the People's Bank of China, would move to halt Bitcoin transactions effective April 15th. So the statement read, read, it is rumored that on March 18th, the People's Bank of China has issued a statement calling for all Bitcoin transactions to be halted by April 15th. As of today, the People's Bank of China has not confirmed or denied the statement. So the the statement was later uh, retracted and uh, the site um, uh, then clarified by saying that uh, this, uh, well, this this statement was, uh, was not true. So the... The, the price kind of went down from there. Uh, we saw a uh, price, uh, the price fall of about 2%. And this, so this is not, uh, well, well, 2% we is nothing in Bitcoin terms, no? Well, it's nothing in Bitcoin terms, but I guess what's interesting is that it hasn't really readjusted back since then. So we saw the price go down on March 21st when this, uh, when, when this statement was issued on, uh, Sina Weibo and, but it hasn't gone back up again. So if you want to buy, I guess it's a good opportunity for you to buy some Bitcoins at a low price. But to me, I guess the my my thoughts on this is that, uh, I mean, at any point, anybody can just kind of give false information and ha- falsely report uh, some information that can have a negative impact on the Bitcoin price and make it fluctuate more or less significantly. So it just seems kind of dangerous to me that this is still kind of happening. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess that's, you know, that's, it's just normal. I think that's the case in any market. 
But yeah, uh, hopefully that will decrease over time as Bitcoin becomes larger, more liquid, etc. Yeah, uh, I think it's we have seen this limbo that we've had with China where it wasn't really clear is this going anywhere is our Bitcoin exchanges legal are they not does Bitcoin have a future in China and of course this news story is once again sort of called into question even if it turned out to be wrong but what we also saw last week was that there was an investment of 10 million dollars in OKCoin and uh, 10 million dollars that's of course one of the largest investments that they have been uh, in any Bitcoin company um, so, yeah, no, that's, uh, I guess, a sign, at least, that uh, the investors that are doing that, and it's a Chinese VC firm called uh, Wan. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, and uh, some American VCs like uh, Tim and Adam Draper. So Adam Draper is the one who does Boost VC, which is the kind of Bitcoin-focused uh, accelerator in uh, Silicon Valley. So they also invested. So at least it seems like they are believing that uh, Bitcoin does have a future in China. Yeah, and I mean, just, you know, Bobby Lee has always <laughs> said that Bitcoin in China has, is fine. Uh, and again, like he was on Bloomberg this week saying that, um, that uh, you know, Bitcoin exchanges still have, you know, just, just kind of repeating what he's been saying since the beginning, right? That Bitcoin exchanges still have a right to operate in China, that uh, the central bank simply issued guidances in December, contrary to what people were thinking that it was actually banned. So there's been a lot of news come out of China that I think has been misinterpreted by the West. Now, this was not even news. This was just, you know, some false reporting or some misinterpretations of some sort of statement. But uh, one thing that uh, um, somebody pointed out, so Eric Gu, the co-founder of uh, the BitAngels Club, they're an incubator, uh, he says that the fact that the Chinese central bank swiftly came out to uh, working, um, uh, sorry, the fact that the Chinese central bank swiftly came out, came off working hours to dismiss the rumor uh, indicated that it had planned to shut down Bitcoin exchange at any time soon. Well, goes to show that the China central bank doesn't plan on on uh, banning Bitcoin. Okay, well, I guess that's good to you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, is there something else you want to uh, discuss regarding this story? Well, just just one thing, I, I suppose, which isn't really related to this, but is kind of related to China. Well, it, it is, in fact, related to China. Uh, on March 14th, so not this week, but last week, uh, the Chinese Central Bank made an announcement by which it uh, demanded by payments, uh, it demanded that payments that were made by uh, scanning QR codes be halted. And so this wasn't really a response to Bitcoin in any way, but a uh, response to, so some companies in China, uh, Tencent, who are behind uh, QQ Messenger and a whole bunch of other services, and also Alibaba Group, a uh, very large e-commerce uh, um, holding group. They're, those companies have been working on payment systems, and those payment systems largely use QR code, I guess, to uh, initiate transactions. And, and the Chinese government and Chinese Central Bank are 
not really looking to ban them, but for the for the moment, I guess um, it's, it's being speculated that they're simply trying to see what security implementations these trans systems will have. And so in a move to kind of slow down and halt uh, these these new um, payment systems, proprietary payment systems, they've halted any kind of uh, payments being made by QR code. So in the short term, it, it, it can have, have a, some adverse effects on Bitcoin payments in China, but... No, but you know, uh, no, no. But Bitcoin payments in China are illegal anyway. There are no Bitcoin payments in China, so this is really kind of irrelevant. Right. I, yeah. You're I right. mean, yeah. I, I guess if they came back to it and at some point said, "Okay, now Bitcoin payments are legal," but I don't think that's very likely in the, in the next, I don't know, two years or something. I guess then it would become an issue because then you'd have to find some workaround QR codes. But um, I think for the time yeah, being, right. this is not not particularly because I, I guess there was some uh, um, confusion what the legality of Bitcoin exchanges in China was um, concerned because they said uh, you know they're illegal, but then they also told payment processors not to work with them, and it was it was very confusing. But they were very clear that Bitcoin payments are not allowed. So I think. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah, this is a strange story. Well, like, again, why would Bobby you? Bobby yeah. this that uh, this you know since Bitcoin payments are not being made available in China right now, it probably doesn't affect Bitcoin anyway. But if they are to be made available uh, down the road, not having QR codes is probably not a big deal because in any case, we're probably using some other sort of technology as QR codes become kind of passe and NFC takes over or whatever Bluetooth kind of technology takes over. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's it's definitely not something to worry about now. If if the Chinese should say, okay, Bitcoin payments are okay, then one can worry about it. But there's no signs of that happening, so... Mm. Yeah, well... Okay, was, yeah, this kind of ties to that. Maybe one thing I want to very briefly cover because we mentioned OKCoin raised ten million dollars. Also, story leaked last week that Bitstamp had raised ten million dollars last year. So this happened months ago. It's not quite clear when, but apparently it was following some trip at Lake Tahoe, and uh, the investment was made by uh, Pantera Capital. I think we've mentioned Pantera Capital before. But they're kind of a San Francisco-based hedge fund that uh, is focused on Bitcoin. And they're owned by uh, the hedge fund called Fortress Investment Group. And this is a very large fund. We've talked about them before as well, I think. Uh, because they're one of their sort of C-level executives was one of the first Wall Street people to say, like, I believe in Bitcoin. And he declared that he himself put in a lot of money into Bitcoin. And they are also the ones who invested in this uh, company called uh, Xapo. Uh, we talked about last week. So they yeah. insured Bitcoin storage. So they're, they're kind of making a big uh, Bitcoin bet. And apparently last year they organized this uh, 
this trip to Lake Tahoe where, where there was a whole bunch of Bitcoin CEOs and after that they made the, and, and including the CEO of Bitstamp and after that they made this investment. So um, I guess what we can take away from this, my view, is that when, when we think back to this prediction episode we did at the beginning of the year, we talked about the fiat bottleneck and the kind of difficulty of transitioning between uh, currency, like fiat currencies like US all year and Bitcoin. And of course, where there's friction, there's also opportunity. And I think we're seeing that with these investments that there's definitely a very big opportunity in the exchange space and a huge need, of course, because if we see the the constant disasters we're seeing with exchanges, what's really needed is that they're like high-powered quality exchanges with experienced people and a security staff who actually know something about security. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree that there, there's a, uh, I think that this is an opportunity for uh, uh, investors to, uh, to invest in serious people. Uh, looking to build serious exchanges with, like you say, you know, real services and real security because this is definitely lacking. Uh, I mean, I think that we need also to build more confidence in in the ecosystem so that you know new people coming in will um, have some sound choices that they can uh, they can look towards to buy and sell their bitcoins. Yeah, I mean, and also bringing bringing innovation because for now, I mean, exchanges are pretty much all doing the same thing. Uh, I, I don't in, think in the that's same way. It's, yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, conversation, and I think it's one that comes up a lot. And a lot of people talk about like, uh, you know, uh, multi-signature wallets or some sort of decentralized exchange, etc. But uh, you know, it really running exchange is very simple, and I think what's absolutely needed is just have companies that are well-funded and that are reliable and experienced and they're not scams. And that, I think at the moment, this is perhaps the biggest vulnerability. I think it is by far the biggest vulnerability at this moment is that there's just a, a extreme problem in that we don't have that. And if you think back to the whole Mt. Gox story, Bitstamps is the largest exchange now with 34%, and that is exactly because Mt. Gox collapsed. And if we have another large ex- exchange, just BTCE, I don't know exactly if it's like second or third or something, um, but uh, BTCE has a terrible reputation, and a lot of people expect that um, they may not survive very long because no, but nobody actually knows who owns them. You know, they, they're certainly not the most, I would say, careful when it comes to doing KYC or all those things. So I think there's a very high chance they'll get shut down by law enforcement or perhaps they will just run away with the money, uh, which, of course, would be terrible. So it's extremely needed that they're you know, responsible exchanges that are high performance, secure, reliable, trustworthy. 
Yeah, and hey, I mean, I, I think that exchanges also need to innovate. You know, like you say, running an exchange at the core is very is something that's very simple. You know, at the very basic of what an exchange is. But I think that exchanges can also innovate by bringing new kind of services to customers. So by new services, I mean new ways of bringing in their money. You know, we've yeah, seen, no. like Coinbase, for instance, do this kind of like thing with the credit card where you know you can you can buy bitcoins with a credit card, but then it's backed by an account. Um, uh, like like BTCE now, which is offering uh, withdrawals through by credit card, also. So this is a new kind of service. But also, for instance, have you know like this uh, Neo B uh, in in Cyprus, where you can actually have real real money, having having it be a real bank account and being able to buy Bitcoin. So we we, we need exchanges to be more than exchanges. We need them to be platforms. Uh, um, we need them to be currency exchange platforms rather than just kind of Bitcoin exchanges. I think that they need to look at themselves as more than just the Bitcoin exchanges and be currency exchange value, have a currency exchange value proposition that is, that goes beyond that. I I, honestly, I don't think I agree with you. I think what's needed is just have large performance, you know, like good exchanges. Afterwards, you can build on top of it, right? I, I totally agree with you. We need the other thing too. We need to have like smooth ways to buy Bitcoin, etc. And Coinbase is doing a great job at that. But Coinbase is not an exchange, right? right. So I, I think you just need to have these super liquid, high-performance exchanges that work for, you know, whether it's like uh, financial institutions or whether it's companies like Coinbase that, that utilize that. And that's just super needed. And there's... There's a need that there's a few of them that work really well, because right now that just isn't the case. And uh, and then I think what we also need is is what you're talking about is the innovation in terms of making it convenient, etc. But I don't think that necessarily needs to come from the same people. I think that it's probably better if something, so you know, a company like Bitstamp, they just focus on doing a good exchange or hmm. Kraken or those people. That's and, interesting. And th- that kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week with uh, with Jonathan, where an exchange essentially is just just a platform for moving uh, for moving Bitcoin and, and changing it to cash um, or fiat rather, and then you have different layers of services. But and, you also, and the exchange, yeah. the exchange kind of just becomes an API for yeah. these other layers of service. That's exactly what an exchange is. Yeah, absolutely. I think the exchange primarily, at least these these high-performance exchanges, they need to have APIs and they really, what they also are, they're a tool to, you know, to provide liquidity and to allow for kind of instant, you know, if you look at something like BitPay, you know, if you want to have that you can have a fixed price and as a merchant, you can accept Bitcoin without having to worry about the volatility, etc. You can only do it if you can do instant trading. You need liquidity for that. So they need these uh, liquid exchanges that have APIs, etc. So I, I think uh, exchange primarily is a service provider of liquidity, uh, you know, kind of allows to get rid of the risk, the currency risk, fast, cheap, secure, and at a high volume. And that's uh, complex enough. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought that way uh, until now. And then I guess was afterwards, which was also very needed. I think, you know, if you talk about exchange going beyond 
what will be more important, I think, than making it convenient because other people can do that if, if they have an open API, especially. But uh, what's also needed is uh, derivatives. I think that will be, uh, I know a variety of exchanges are certainly working on that. I think uh, Jaren of Coinset, I think they're also working on that. We, we talk with him at uh, inside yeah. Bitcoin's conference. Uh, can you elaborate? Can you elaborate a bit on what what exactly Bitcoin derivatives are for somebody who's not very fluent in in uh, financial instruments, such as myself? Yeah, so a uh, derivative would be like, let's say you need to buy something a month from now for uh, ten bitcoins, and you want to lock in. You know, you want to. Or let let's let's put it like this. Let's say you will receive. 10 bitcoins a month from now and you don't want to have the currency risk so you could you could sell those bitcoins basically right now or you could sell a contract to someone else uh, that will give you the right to sell the 10 bitcoins a month from now at a certain price so now I don't have the currency risk anymore someone else assumes it um, so it, it locks me in to a certain price. So, so it's it's really a way to, I guess there's two sides. It can be a way to hedge risk, so to hedge currency risk, or it can be a way to speculate. You know, okay. so you would have, uh, you could, you know, you could take, uh, you could leverage. So if I say I'm going to buy, so let's say maybe we run through a simple example. So if you have the Bitcoin price right now is, what is it like, four. Uh, $600 something uh, $550 $560 yeah so uh, I could say if you so another thing would be an option so I could say I buy an option for uh, $40 that gives me the right in two months uh, to buy bitcoins at $700 um, so what would that mean? If it means that if the Bitcoin price is less than seven hundred dollars, then my option is worthless, so it will just disappear, and the forty dollars are lost. But now, if the Bitcoin price goes to nine hundred dollars, then I can buy those Bitcoins for seven hundred dollars and immediately sell them for nine hundred dollars. So now, now I've made two hundred dollars profit there. And I've only invested $440, right? Okay. So, so you this, this doesn't exist yet? I don't think so. I think... Well, I no, I think there are some f people who are doing that. But it doesn't exist on the large exchanges and it doesn't exist in, you know, in kind of a significant amount. But if and you why is, why is that? Is that because there's not... Uh, exchanges don't have the um, liquidity to do that, or what? Could also be because of regulations. Oh, okay. I think you might have to have different regulations to do this kind of thing. I I'm not exactly sure. It, yeah, but uh, it's definitely something different people are working on, and I it will probably be changing soon. Okay. But if you talk about financial institutions moving into Bitcoin, this is something that uh, is a huge uh, need for. And whoever provides this kind of thing 
you know, there's a there's a very big business. And so, that, is this something that the so before we come back to what we were saying a while ago, is is this something that the exchanges should be offering, or that somebody with API access to the exchange is offering another layer of services on top of that should be offering? I think that's something that exchanges should be offering because that's something that would be traded as well. You'd be trading those, they're like contracts that would be traded. And so who takes the risk? Is it the exchange or is it the people that are trading? No, so there would be two parties, right? So I, so if you talk about that contract from before, uh, you could be buying the contract, but somebody has to be selling it to you. So there would be an, someone else needs to create a contract to sell it to you. So it's between so, two parties. So there would be a marketplace for those kind of things. Uh, okay, so you have a derivatives marketplace, I see. Yeah, okay. exactly. So yeah. the exchanges take on your risk. They just facilitate the the exchange of this, well, the, the, the sale of this contract between two yeah. parties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, I see. Huh, okay. Yeah, so then then the exchange, just like, you know, like what we're saying, just really becomes a platform and a marketplace. Uh, and they deal with the liquidity of cash, uh, well, not cash, but fiat currency. They hold uh, the bitcoins, and then they just make their money on fees, but then they offer all these services through API access. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Huh. But, I mean, if you talk about Bitcoin becoming very big, then you'll have enormous volumes on these exchanges. You know, just think of something like BitPay. Yeah. You know, they they will generate enormous uh, transaction volumes. And then if you have uh, maybe hedge funds or financial institutions getting into that and doing like trading at a high volume, uh, you will have, you have gigantic volumes. So these exchanges, you know, it can be an extremely lucrative business. And it's also, you have network effects. So you would want to, like an exchange that's not liquid. If you talk about the options, for example, the derivatives, I mean, derivatives, it gets more, much more specialized. You know, you may have lots of different derivatives on Bitcoin. It's not just Bitcoin dollar. Uh, so there is a big network effect there. If you have a small exchange that's not liquid, it's not worth very much because you won't be able to do any of those things. So there is kind of a, a first mover thing. So so whoever does that and does it at a high, at a big scale, will have a hugely more valuable thing than others. Yeah, and whoever builds that infrastructure, once that infrastructure is built, it scales pretty well. No, of would course it, would it not. I mean, your, your no, costs it, don't really go up that much because. No, absolutely right. It scales extremely well. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so, that's something yeah, we can come back to. Yeah, I mean, I think this is why there's so much interest as well in this exchange space because it is, is one of the crucial pieces of infrastructure for everything. I mean, you know, if you talk about payment processes, all those things depend on exchanges. So it's extremely important. So maybe we could talk about uh, KNC Miner uh, open up, opening up uh, script mining for pre-orders. Yeah, so I, I looked into this a bit. I've looked into Litecoin mining a few times. Yeah, we've so, talked about it quite a few times now. Yeah, we, we have. Yeah, yeah. So, Should we buy one of these? 
Uh, I'm, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, if I had $10,000 right now, should I buy one of these, Brian? <laughs> Let, let's, let's, I mean, I, I don't know. Of course, your choice. I, I personally wouldn't. <laughs> um, yeah, so maybe you can brief around through. So KNC Miner, of course, you know, the Bitcoin mining company. I don't know if they're the biggest, but one of them, they actually the one company or one of the few companies that have a reputation that they they actually ship their products. They don't just take your money. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now this is going to sell for $10,000 and it does a hundred mega hash per second. Now in script, in script terms, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So I was, I was reading up on that. I think if you build so usually script today is mined with uh, GPUs, so graphic cards. And uh, I was reading, I think, I, I once looked into this. So you could, if you get sort of a normal graphic card, you could do, if I remember correctly, something like a thousand kilo hashes, and it costs you maybe $700. It may be, I may be somewhat off in those numbers, but of course, this is now a hundred times as strong, right? And um, it's and a lot, perhaps more efficient, also. I don't, they don't say anything about the power consumption, so I don't know, but <laughs> presumably, I, I would think so, but. yeah. Which makes it hard then. I saw that the, the, the website where you can get when you can work in pre order doesn't say much other than just. The fact that it has a hundred mega hashes, and even that's kind of hard to find. And, well, um, so I mean, the, that makes yeah, the it very mega hashes. I'm sorry. Yeah, so the hundred mega hashes is not actually that they don't know if it's going to be that. That's just sort of their minimum, but it may be more. Okay. Uh, because they haven't actually built this thing yet, as far as I know. So, so they're just saying, okay, you can give us your money. We'll give you these sometime this summer or fall. Uh, they will have uh, at least 100 mega hashes and some unknown power consumption. So it's, of course, very risky because you don't know what you're getting. You don't know when you're getting it. Uh, right. It You probably will get it. But if if you talk about there's some other companies selling Litecoin miners that don't have any track record. And in that case, maybe you don't even know if you're getting anything. Now, this is interesting because it's the first Litecoin mining rig, commercially built Litecoin mining rig. I mean, for now, people are just using, using GPUs and graphic cards. So the question well, the, is, like, is there's the another, There's another company uh, that's also, that also took pre-orders in January. Oh. I mean, yeah, they haven't uh, shipped, but I think they're supposed to sometime this summer. Although I have to say, I looked into the company and it was like, mm, I don't know, it didn't seem very trustworthy. Right. So this is this is probably the first that's going to ship, though. I we don't could, know. We, we it could be the other one. one. Yeah. So the, the question is, is this the end of GPU mining? Will I be able to buy a graphics card now and actually use it for gaming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because I wanted to buy a graphics card for gaming, and you know they told me that they were all out because everybody's been buying them for script mining. Are you serious? Yet. No, I don't play games. 
Because <laughs> 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 I'd heard, I heard stories like that, but I didn't yeah, know yeah. it was actually France as well that was the case, and uh, you can't get any graphic cards anymore. Yeah, I heard this also, but but well, I mean, what's interesting uh, now, rather, whether this is profitable or not, is, I guess another question. But these script miners are interesting because, of, I mean, of course, you can mine Litecoin, you can mine Dogecoin, you can mine Feathercoin, you can mine all types of other altcoins, since most altcoins are uh, written in script. And it opens up the possibility for uh, well, this is already already exists, I think. But for a kind of intelligent software that will uh, automatically mine whatever's more profitable. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's the standard way, I think. Yeah, so well, this more is really more standard way of doing kind of it. Interesting, uh, in contrast to Bitcoin, where you're always mining the same thing. No, there's also there's also other uh, Bitcoin SHA-based coins. Right, but there's a lot less. Right, you have more choices. There's, that's true. I think the reason there's less is uh, exactly because of the mining power with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So the, I guess the problem was, right? So if you started a new Bitcoin-based coin with SHA-256, then, you know, some mining pool or a large operator would put their mining power on your coin and they could kind of wreak havoc in your coin so they yeah. could, maybe the difficulty, you know, if you had some sort of a difficulty adjustment thing, it would make it extremely difficult and they would leave your coin and then no one would ever find the block again. So that could happen, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, the difficulty, of course, determines, you know, how fast you're going to find the block. And if your hash rate varies massively, this is extremely, makes it very difficult for a coin to function. So I think the one reason why Litecoin was so popular was because you couldn't mine it with the Bitcoin hardware. So they kind of avoided that thing and because it didn't scale so well, because you had these uh, GPU-based miners, it, it kind of worked better. And it's it's very interesting. I recently linked to this this site in my newsletter. I don't remember what it was called now. But it had a tree where you saw uh, the different coins that were derived from each other. And of course, Bitcoin was first, and then there was some other thing. And then there was Litecoin was actually, at least according to this tree, wasn't derived from Bitcoin, but from that other thing that was derived from Bitcoin. Oh, really? It was some currency that I never heard of, and it was it was kind of, it died again after a few months in 2011. <laughs> um but if you looked at this, there are maybe three times as many coins based on script as on uh, Bitcoin or SHA-256. Yeah, so th- this is where it becomes interesting. I, I, I think this is why so many people have uh, turned to sh- uh, script mining. It's because there's more alternatives there. There, are, uh, There's, I guess, more. I think more interesting coins for mining, like Dogecoin, for, in- for instance, that's have Kind of, that has kind of a, a, a generated a lot, a lot of buzz and a lot of interest. Yeah, I mean, so, you couldn't even mine uh, bitcoins with at all, right? With uh, oh, yeah, with graphic cards. I mean, that's been over since the ASICs, which was big, kind of beginning of last year, no, or spring so, of last year. So two thousand nine. It's like back <laughs> in the eighties. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe we should just talk about profitability a little bit. 
Yeah. So, uh, what are your I guess, on this? yeah. So f- as far as I know, there, there's, if there's actually another thing we need to talk about. So with the Bitcoin ASIC miners, you would have these gigantic differences, you know, between graphic cards and these ASIC miners is huge differences. So I think as soon as you had uh, ASICs, all the GPUs are kind of out of uh, order very quickly. And I think with the script, even though you now have ASICs, the difference isn't as enormous. So it doesn't scale as well, which I think is one of the reasons why you didn't have the ASICs until now, was that even though you can make them perhaps more efficient, they're not orders of magnitudes more efficient. Um, Than graphic cards, really graphic cards. So, I I mean, what I want to say is, I guess the the kind of jump that you had from uh, GPU mining uh, Bitcoin to ASIC mining Bitcoin was much larger than the jump you have here. Right. Okay, I see. Um, and then, of course, there's a smaller market size for script-based versus Bitcoin was the other reason why you didn't have these before. So the financial incentive wasn't as big. But if you look at... Um, so I looked at the profitability of this, you know, like, should, should one buy this? So if we assume... So in the last three months, I just looked at Litecoin. So in the last three months, the profit, the difficulty of Litecoin is roughly doubled. Now, this is going to take at least three months to be delivered, I think. Uh, so if you assume it doubles again, th- then you would mine uh, at the current Litecoin price about uh, $4,000 in the first month. So that's 40% of... Um, your cost. Now, you can assume with all that mining hardware being bought, a hundred percent increase in three months is probably too conservative. It may be much higher. In which case, your profit, of course, would be lower, or, or the money you earn would be lower. So, it seems very. It seems. It seems on. So let's put it like this. Of course, if the Lycon price increases, then you also make more money. So perhaps if the Lycon price increases, you'll actually make you $10,000 back and more. But then the question is, wouldn't you have been better off just buying Litecoins? To me, it seems it's, it's very difficult to predict how this is going to play out. But my bet would be, I'm pretty sure this is not going to be profitable, at least not profitable in comparison with just buying Litecoin or perhaps other script-based coins. So you say, would you be better off buying Litecoins? Uh, That is assuming that the Litecoin price goes up. What kind of effect does the release of products like this have on the Litecoin price? Doesn't the, the... the, isn't the fact that people are mining them also have some sort of a, an effect on price? Yeah, that's, a good qu- that's a good question. I, I don't know. I've, I've been thinking that a lot because oftentimes we'll say, yeah, yeah, you, you could have just bought the Bitcoins or you could have just bought the Litecoins rather than spend your money on this mining hardware or this cloud or these cloud mining contracts. Yeah, but does 
the very fact that this mining hardware comes out not have an effect on price as well? So, I mean, my thinking all this is generally, I think it shouldn't. Uh, I think those are kind of roughly independent. Maybe not completely, but mm-hmm. I, I don't really see why this would have a massive effect. Uh, I mean, okay, if if now people buy the hardware instead of buying Litecoins, then perhaps perhaps the Litecoin price would be harder, uh, higher if they buy Litecoins instead of hardware. But I, I don't honestly, I don't think there's really a relationship there. I think no. those are those are largely independent. It'd be what interesting if, to keep an eye on that when this hardware does ship. If the price of uh, not just Litecoin but other uh, script based coins like those corner for the corner, whatever. I mean, you can off. you can look at uh, you can look at the difficulty over the last few months in Litecoin, and you can look at the price, and uh, you know difficulty is. Doubled, the price is down. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, like since, Je- I mean, Litecoin was at $50 once, no? And uh, it's now, what is it now at? Less than 20 It's like $10 now. Yeah, what's it? $15. Yeah, I so, bought them uh, when they were about 30 and now they're at. Uh, half the price, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you look at the difficulty, uh, you know, this is, it's been a dramatic improve, uh, increase. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm very skeptical of, of the, you know, of how much sense it makes for people to buy this hardware. I, I, I personally wouldn't. Yeah, I see what you mean, uh, but I think for... Um, it might be fun, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that. I mean, I think when I when I first started reading about Bitcoin and stuff, the first thing that I naturally started going, reading about was, was mining. Like, I spent about a week, like, on mining calculators, although I knew I wouldn't buy mining hardware because it was just too expensive at the time and not worth it. Uh I was drawn towards mining because it seemed fun to like do this thing with your computer that would generate money. I think for a lot of people that has a lot to do with it. I think there's I, also a lot of people that have false hopes in thinking that. Yeah, I I think I've I've talked with a lot of people, of course, about you know Bitcoin and and mining and all those things. And one thing I've observed very often, which I find kind of puzzling. But a lot of people seem to think, so they get into this and they seem to think, okay, so I see Bitcoin and it's gained such tremendous uh, amount in value and buying Bitcoin is kind of too late now. You know, this is uh, it's too obvious and I don't want to spend money to buy Bitcoins, but, but maybe mining is the answer. Maybe mining is some sort of, you know, because I, I guess... I don't know. There seems to be something psychological that people that draws people a lot to mining, and uh, I, I mean, it's that I, feeling I, of working for your money, Brian. That's I guess. <laughs> I guess it's also the idea, like you get this machine, and then it, it like 
prints money for you. It like mines yeah. money for you. No, it's like attractive. No, but I think from my understanding, I, this may be somewhat wrong, but for most of the time, I think of the his Bitcoin's history, mining was not profitable. Like I think, like maybe all of Bitcoin's history. Now, of course, if you mined it, you know, let's say if it took you uh, five dollars to mine a Bitcoin when it was worth three dollars, and you mine Bitcoins, well, even if it wasn't profitable as opposed to just buying them, it, it was still hugely profitable if you compare, you know, the the increase we've had since then. But I, I, from my understanding, I haven't looked into this with detail, but I think this was always kind of the case that people, you know, that the competition was so high that it was actually cheaper to just buy the coins. Right. So but where, where is mining going? Then? I mean, if, if mining is not profitable, I mean, people are still doing it, but let's, let's say that, uh, let's assume that people will realize that mining is no longer profitable. I mean, we need miners. Uh, but I, I guess maybe it's profitable for some people, right? So maybe the people who got it first and the people who are most cheapest electricity, etc. And then the advantage, of course, is also that the difficulty can decrease too. So if people ended up turning off their hardware, then you might have a decrease in difficulty and should should hopefully be okay. Uh, I didn't know that difficulty could decrease. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was only. I thought it could only increase. Yeah, the problem is only if the hash rate decreases too quickly, because it will take maybe a few block. There's some sort of schedule, like every x blocks, it it looks at you know, and it may decrease the difficulty. But then if the hash rate decreases very quickly and the difficulty only increases later, you might have this gap where the hash rate is really low, but the difficulty is still really high and just no block gets mined. Or it takes two weeks for a block to get mined. So some of the altcoins have had this problem, which was kind of collapsed them. Okay. And and what's I guess what's perhaps uh, worth note mentioning here is that other coins have, if you if you look back at the Bitcoin white paper, it, it says in there like one CPU, one vote. I guess that was the original idea that you know anybody could use their computer to mine, and so it would be this democratic, decentralized mining network. And of course, that was a complete failure. And Litecoin had that aspiration as well because I guess they saw that Bitcoin. I, I I wonder if that was the reason, but I guess, so Litecoin, there was the idea that this was, was going to be more democratic, you know, more distributed. And it, it seems like this may also be approaching uh, its end. And now there's other coins that are using some other algorithms that are trying to do the same thing again, you know. So I know there's something called WordCoin, which is sort of popular. I don't know exactly how it works. Or also, we were talking about Ethereum earlier. Ethereum, they also were evaluating different mining algorithms, but the idea very much was also that it would be CPU mineable. 
All right, should we move on to our next topic, our last topic, I guess? Yeah, let's do that. Save the best for last. We all know this is the best. Uh, it's a brief update on what's been happening with Mel Cox. Uh, I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to cover this at the beginning of the show because it's just been so so long and dreadful to talk about Mel Cox every time. But we'll keep it short this time because not, not a lot's happened. But uh, we just kind of want to come back to it uh, occasionally to give you people an update when when there's not much happening. So Mel Cox found. So Mt. Gox was, was out to uh, 850,000 Bitcoins. Mt. Gox has apparently found 200,000 of those Bitcoins buried away in, in an old wallet that had not been used uh, since June 2011. So on March 7th, they apparently found, and I'm using air quotes here as they found, 200,000 Bitcoin. Huh? In Mark Carpelli's shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, what's this? Oh, a wallet. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? So they found these these bitcoins in, in an old format wallet, and I love how these press releases always use these terms to try to kind of, um, you know, they use these terms like old format wallet. Why don't you just come out and give us the real story? You don't have to like sugarcoat the technical details because people understand them you know you can tell us what what this means when you're talking about an old format wallet you can tell us you know whatever it means so um so mount gox immediately reported the findings to uh, its councils uh on march 8th there was a, a hearing that was held then the findings were reported to the court because Mt. Gox is in a civil rehabilitation procedure right now. And on the 14th to 15th of, uh, of March, those Bitcoins were moved to uh, cold wallets. So, well, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, now there are competent security people on the case and working with Mt. Gox to make sure that not like so that the rest of their money doesn't get stolen. That seems uh, quite unlikely to me. It seems quite unlikely, so uh, we could just assume that these 200,000 Bitcoins are going to get stolen next month. Anyway, uh, on March 20th, they issued a press release on their website uh, explaining that they had found this money and, uh, well, basically just kind of going through what I just uh, explained here. And so this brings the total amount of Bitcoins being held by Matt Gox to 200,002. Uh, 202,000 Bitcoins, rather, sorry. So 202,000 Bitcoins, that's with the 2,000 Bitcoins that they still had before. So at current prices, that means, uh, what, you get a calculator nearby, Brian? Uh, about uh, 100 million, a bit more. Yeah, so the current prices is that of, of course, the implication would be this would be about a quarter, maybe a bit less of the customer's funds. So if that turns out to be really the case, uh, I mean, I think any anything coming out of Mt. Gox has to be taken with a grain of salt. But if that really did turn out to be the case, and if we kind of disregard the whole um, fiat US dollar gaps that there were as well, this would be about 23, 24%. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't know, perhaps that means people will actually get back 23% of their Bitcoins. Uh, I, it is we hope that they'll get fat back chance. something. <laughs> that's a fat huh? chance. I think that's a fat chance. 
Yeah. Now, there's also some other kind of interesting... Uh, so, I, I, I don't know what to think about this. There's been some speculation on Reddit uh, as to whether this is true or not. And and also some, some kind of... Some people um, looking at these 200,000 Bitcoins and saying that they're the same 180,000 Bitcoins that have been moving through the blockchain. Not really sure what the link is there, but... So when they say that they found them, were they were they holding them the whole time? Nobody really knows. It's the communication's been so sparse and unclear that I guess we have to leave it up to hackers to give us the real information. Now, there's an, an interesting kind of development is that now Bitcoin are allowing users to log in and check their balances. So when you go to mountgox.com now, you have this. Uh, uh, this page, which you can log into with your login info, and you get your balance in uh, Bitcoin and dollars. So, I think that to, to me, this is a response to the information that was leaked. <laughs> um, so it's great for customers to be able to see that they've got their uh, that their what their Bitcoin balances are. But uh, as uh, Aaron G, the protester who went to Japan and protested in front of Bitcoin, uh, Mt. Gox's office says hackers already liberated the the Mt. Gox databases. I was able to confirm my balance there. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I guess uh, we'll, we'll see. I think we still haven't really heard uh, the whole story here, and uh, yeah. hopefully we will at some point. So, last uh, thing we want to cover isn't really a news story. It's just something that we uh, kind of want to um, uh, cover because we, we think it's uh, an interesting project and kind of we support it. So this week in Paris, there was the uh, Paris Bitcoin meetup at, uh, at the Paymium offices. And so their meetup is a startups meetup. So people come and pitch startups or pitch ideas. And one of the... Um, one of the pitches, and I wasn't there, I just heard about it afterwards, uh, was bitcoinsymbol.org. So if you go to bitcoinsymbol.org, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, their pitches, uh, Bitcoins deserve, Bitcoin deserves the right symbol. So currently, Bitcoin does have a symbol, I guess you could call it, and that is the, the Bitcoin B that we're so used to seeing. So um, it's kind of like a, a B with, uh, with two bars across it, like, uh, like a U.S. dollar. Now, this works because it's very recognizable and you associate those two bars to you know, the dollar sign and money and such. The problem is that this is a logo and it's not actually a symbol um, because, well, it, it's, it's a graphical logo. It doesn't actually exist in terms of uh, typeface. So you can't, you, you can't currently use a regular font like Arial or Times New Roman or any type of font and use this character. So this has been a, re- a real problem with Bitcoin, and so people have been using other symbols that kind of that, that resemble the Bitcoin logo. So there is the mm-hmm. the, tie, the tie bot, for instance, and the tie bot is a B with one bar uh, going down vertically through the B, and this works. And people have been using it in uh, in, uh, in in text online uh, when when they can't use the Bitcoin uh, logo. 
But it confuses, again, because we're using a symbol that's used for something else, which is a, a Thai bot. And so what these people propose is a new symbol, which is a B with a horizontal line through the bottom part of the B. And the reason why they propose this uh, character, and it's been already used to, uh, to represent Bitcoin. People are already, some people are already using it as opposed to the Bitcoin symbol. Um, the reason why they propose this character is that it, it is a character that exists in typography. So that it, in most fonts and typefaces, it actually exists. You can type it with your keyboard using special codes or copy and pasting it from, from, from the internet or whatever. Um, much like the dollar symbol or the euro symbol, uh, you can use it in Times New Roman and serif font. You can use it with Arial or Helvetica, which is a sans serif font. Uh, and you'll have a, a version of it in that font face. And one interesting thing about the symbol is that it's not actually used currently uh, by any language. Um, so from what they explain here on the website, it was meant to be a visual representation of the German double S sign. So if you've ever seen German uh, writing, you'll notice that there's sort of a kind of a weird B. Sorry, not to offend you, uh, Brian, but this is kind of like weird B yeah. thing. Uh, which it's, is it's just that we don't use, they don't use that. You use the, you just use two S's. But yeah, it's... Oh. Uh, okay. Yeah, it so, looks like a B reverse kind of goes to the bottom. Yeah. Um, and so the, this this character that's being proposed as a as a as a candidate for the Bitcoin logo isn't really used. It's it's in most typefaces. It exists in most fonts, but it's not really used by anything. So let's take it and use it for ourselves. And uh, so we've looked at this, uh, Brian and I, and we support this this project, and we support. Uh, the use of this logo uh, or this symbol for for Bitcoin, and, and we think that it should be generally uh, adopted. And so we're going to start using it from now on. In fact, we're working on our new cover design, and most likely it will be included in there. Uh, and we'll be using it from now on in, in, in our writings and presentations and wherever we're using the Bitcoin symbol. And so we, we encourage you to do the same. So if you have... Uh, if you uh, if you're involved with Bitcoin and you have a blog, for instance, we encourage you to start using this this uh, symbol. If you've got a company and a company logo in which you have the Bitcoin symbol, we encourage you to use the symbol also, and uh, and we also encourage you to encourage others to do the same, so that we can all be on the same page here and all be using the same symbol that's recognizable. Uh, if you have a business and you accept Bitcoin and you're using the old symbol, we also encourage you to look on this site. Uh, to, uh, so BitcoinSymbol.org and they have some suggestions as to uh, some artwork that you can use to uh, to show that you accept Bitcoin in your um, in your brick and mortar business or, or online business. So they've got some banners here. They, they, it's I, it's, it's quite they, nice. Yeah, yeah. I, say that I think they need some design work. <laughs> uh, some of these are a little uh, well. It's open to your interpretation, so there's not like a generally accepted. I guess the next step now is to make some real kind of branding signage that everybody can use, sort of like we accept Visa, uh, that's you know uh, generally recognized and globally identifiable. That can, yeah. you know, we can make these stickers that just 
take anywhere we want. Uh, um, yeah, so cool project. Um, yeah, Bitcoin we encourage everybody to yeah encourage everybody to uh, head over there and check it out and start using the new Bitcoin symbol. Okay, well, thanks very much for listening this week. Um, if you wanna if you wanna support us, then uh, you can tip us. So you can go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips. You can also subscribe to your newsletter at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter going out every Friday. And uh, you can uh, write a review. That would also be appreciated. So you could do that on iTunes, especially, or Stitcher. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah, and also uh, please follow us on Twitter. We're at epicenterbitcoin. Uh, sorry, twitter.com slash epicenterbtc. It is really late. We've been rambling on. <laughs> yeah, let's wrap this up. I don't think anymore. So let's uh, just say uh, good uh, good night and good. Uh, I mean, you're not listening to us at night necessarily, but um, thank you again for listening, and we will talk to you next week. We're gonna go to sleep. All right. Goodbye. Bye bye.